2 Samuel chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheptiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that you may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace 
At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he sent him away and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asael at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today. Though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zariah are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. When I was a little boy, unlike most of you, I did all kinds of weird, crazy things, terrible things. I had a teacher in elementary school who would quote the Scottish author and novelist Sir Walter Scott, Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Yes, some of you had the same teacher. 
when first we practice to deceive. When do you suppose a teacher is likely to tell a student, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive? It's when we're caught in a lie. When you're caught in a lie, most of you know that in order to fuel the lie, you have to promote the lie and you have to provide for the lie and you have to encourage the lie. Right from the start, what can we learn from this chapter? Well, number one, be sure that your sin will find you out. There's nothing that we say or do that certainly doesn't have an effect. Remember, the Bible certainly says what a person sows, that also they will reap. When we sow sinful seeds, we reap sinful deeds. And people who are anointed by God, people who have a plan and a purpose in God's design, Godly men and women who have a plan and a purpose for their life, they can make regrettable decisions. And remember, this chapter is a tale that we've often followed in almost every chapter we've studied. It's a tale of two kings. And guess what we've already learned over and over and over again? That one country cannot have two kings. It's a tale of two kings filled with intrigue and sex and deceit and betrayal and murder. And you thought you would have to TiVo it in order to get all of this good stuff. Yet one thing is still sure when we come to the end of the chapter, God is still causing all things to work together for David's good to accomplish the plan of God because God has a plan for David and for the kingdom and the struggle between the house of Saul and the house of David is going to serve as a great metaphor for the believer's struggle of the flesh and the spirit just like Paul talks about in the book of Galatians that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Abner's attempt to reconcile, even if his motives are impure, are commendable. And the steps David takes to prove his innocence and then keep the peace. When you are a Christian, you're going to face several different challenges. You're going to face challenges from the believer and you're going to face challenges from the unbeliever. We live in a world that's haunted by the rebellion and the opinion of sinful human beings, secular thinking, ungodly and unbiblical thinking constantly threatens to persuade Christians away from godly and biblical thinking. John MacArthur has written a book entitled Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong. And there's a particular statement. He says, quote, our response to moral questions is not determined by politics or economics or personal preferences or popular opinions or human reasoning. It is instead grounded in what God has told us is true about ourselves and about the world. God's word offers sanity and clarity and hope. Now remember, David is in Hebron. His power base is increasing. It is inevitable that David will be the king over all of Israel. Now this becomes an important thing for you. 
it is God's will that David is to be the king over all of Israel. And when you read something like that, what should come immediately into your own mind and into your own heart is what is God's will for me? What does God want for me and from me and for me? And when you do a Bible study, when you open up your Bible and every time you see in your Bible where it says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, you can rest assured that that is in part God's will for you. God had a will for David. In the New Testament, we understand that God had a will for Jesus, David's son. And in the unveiling of the plan that God has for David, and in the unveiling of the plan that God had for Jesus in the New Testament, there are the echoes of the reality of the hope that God has a plan for you and God has a plan for me. Now, if you want to know God's will, part of the issue that you've got to come to grips with is, are you willing to know God's will? And then once you know God's will, are you willing to follow God's plan? You know, anyone who has ever done a careful reading of the Bible knows that God loves you. But we're faced with obstacles. We're faced with fears. Sometimes we've made bad decisions in the past. And sometimes those bad decisions come back to haunt us. Now we have been following David's life. And David has made good decisions. And David has made bad decisions. Failed relationships and past failures are going to come and challenge what God wants to do. Look again in verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And one of the things that you should automatically sort of draw yourself to is the reality it says the house of David it doesn't, and the house of Saul. It doesn't say the house of Ishbosheth. Why do you suppose that is? Again, because I think that this is a metaphor in part. Two kings can never rule the same country. David's house is growing stronger and stronger. And Saul's house is growing weaker and weaker. And this should not surprise you. Because as you know, those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ. As you pray and as you walk in the spirit. As you open up your Bible. Guess what? The house of the son of David grows stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul becomes weaker and weaker in your own circumstances. Guess what happens the moment that you commit to the son of David. And you live for David and you love David's son. And you begin to pray and read and do what God would have you to do. Guess what? The house of the son of David inside of you gets stronger and stronger, and I know what some of you are thinking. You know what? I'm still upset. I'm still confused. I'm still frustrated that the things that I'm thinking and the things that I'm feeling and the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm, I'm doing are not honoring to God. And you need to be able to say, but is the house of the son of David growing stronger and stronger? Is the flesh becoming weaker and weaker? Are you able to say to your own flesh, you know what? 
I am not going to orient myself around the desires of my flesh. Now, remember what your flesh is. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the spirit, remember, that is the spirit of God. It's the spirit of Christ in you. A man can't serve two masters. Either he'll love the one or hate the other, despise the one or cling to the other. You can't serve the devil and God. You can't serve the flesh and the spirit. Over a period of time, David's power base is getting greater and greater, and Ishbosheth's is becoming less and less. And guess what? Abner knows that. And look what it says in verse 2 Sons were born to David in Hebron. This is that period of time before he again assumes the throne and has direct control over all of Israel. This is long before he sets up his headquarters in, in Jerusalem. And his firstborn was Amnon, the Ahinoam, the, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of, of Talmai, king of Jeshur. And we're going to pause for just a moment. In verse 3, Moody has a note in his Bible that's very, very interesting. In his Bible, he scribbled the note, David married a princess who was not of Israel in order to strengthen his kingdom, and Absalom was her son. Now, when it says that Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur, this means she's a royal princess. This means that she comes from royalty. Jeshur is a province, if you will, that was just north of where the ten tribes had their kingdom. And so it was probably either east or west of there. But again, it's a royal province. Now the genealogy tells us something of the dark side of David's character. Again, do the math here quickly. In this particular passage, David has six sons by six different women. Now, again, some people have looked at that and come to the conclusion that polygamy is a good thing. Is polygamy a good thing? It is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. It is true that polygamy was a common custom in the Middle East. Yes, kings consolidated power. They formed alliances with neighboring kingdoms. Kings would often try to promote themselves in their power by taking many wives and having sons and daughters. It was a common practice. It was an accepted custom in the specific culture. But make no mistake about it. It wasn't God's best. And it wasn't God's highest. There are many things that are culturally accepted. We live in a culture and a society where we do things and practice things. We don't necessarily practice polygamy unless you live in Utah or even in Colorado City. However, the Bible teaches 
that the kings were not to multiply wives to themselves. The Lord through Moses warned the people that one day they would have a king and that he wasn't to multiply gold or horses or wives. As a matter of fact, that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, where it says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. You have to understand something. David compromised the heart of God and the word of God. God's plan was one man and one woman forever. That was the plan. We live in a culture that worships celebrity. We live in a culture that has collapsed in its ability to discern right from wrong and good from evil. On my radio program today, I had one of the spokespeople for Focus on the Family, and I made the comment that more people are upset over the fact that a, a, a that Focus on the Family is taking out an ad that celebrates family and celebrates life, and it's drawing more controversy than when Janet Jackson's equipment malfunctioned, and she flashed America. Yeah, that's exactly right. People laughed. But the moment that you suggest that it's a good idea to keep your baby, the moment you suggest that there is something good and decent and honorable about life and about family, there's bitter opposition. By the way, we live in a culture that preoccupies itself with making laws to make homosexual marriage legal and to keep abortion legal. We live in a culture that celebrates death. We, we live in a culture that thinks it can storm God's throne in heaven on the science channel and that all of a sudden all the mysteries of life and all the explanations of why we're here and what we're doing and where we're going is going to somehow magically appear quite apart from the Bible quite apart from God's revelation, quite apart from the problem of sin, quite apart from the knowledge of the Savior, David's polygamy will come back and it will haunt him. And it will hurt him. In our culture, we practice serial monogamy. Instead of many wives, men and women just simply divorce their spouse and move on. And then they move on again, and then they move on again, and then they move on again. And guess what? We joke about it. Girls in high school, they'll be asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll go, a trophy wife? How can you even say that? Here, six wives are listed. Later in the chapter, David will demand the return of Michael. Like that's what he needs, one more woman. After David went to Jerusalem, only one other wife is named, and that's Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, and 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, it tells us David had many other wives and many other concubines who bore, who bore him children in Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't really tell us very much about these people. According to the biblical account, by the way, David will eventually have 20 sons and one daughter, Tamar. She's listed as one of the children of Makkah and Hebron and was also the mother of Absalom. 
Makah appears to be the only one, like I said, of royal descent. Amnon was the natural heir to the throne. He's the oldest. But David should never have married a pagan princess because it was forbidden by God. Her son Absalom would turn out to be a vile and vicious young man. He would hate his father. He would attempt to overthrow the kingdom. Absalom would eventually murder his older brother Amnon for what seems like a good reason. He will rape and dishonor his own sister. And then the basic principle is, again, we see it over and over again. What a person sows that that also that they will reap. David has many fine characteristics and perhaps the most damaging characteristic of David is this unhealthy preoccupation that he has with women and his refusal to discipline his own children. And this will come back to haunt him again and again. And by the way, each and every family will always have a choice. Your home will be a Christ-centered home or your home will be a child-centered home. And right from the start, you're going to have to make a very important decision, mothers and fathers. Will my home be a Christ-centered home or will my home be a child-centered home? By the way, David's firstborn, Amnon, will be killed by the followers of Absalom, David's third son. David's secondborn, Kiliab, mentioned only here, suggests that he dies before David assumes completely and totally the throne. Perhaps he he even dies in childhood. Absalom would lead a revolt against his father, and we're going to see that in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18. David's fourth son, Adonijah, will later be assassinated for insurrection, trying to take the throne from Solomon before he's ever crowned. And that is found in 1 Kings chapter uh, 1 through 3. David's fifth son, Sheptiah, in verse 4. We don't know anything about this guy other than he's mentioned in the genealogy of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 3. Ithream, the sixth and last son born to David in Hebron, we know nothing about. In Psalm 127.4, there's an important scripture. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. These children were supposed to be pointed examples of how to wage war in the future. But guess what? Each and every one of them will experience disaster. These are the children of David's youth. Now, it says in verse 6, Now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. This is the general. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? You might look at that and go, What in the world is that? Am I a dog's head? You know, you think of those little 
dogs in the back of the car with their little bouncy head and it bounces whatever way you want to go. In a way, that's part of what he's saying. Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? The idea being, do you think that I am a person who just simply gives in to whatever the, the people desire? And so, again, it says, Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. It's his way of saying, I made you. By the way, who made Ishbosheth? Abner. He's the one who set him up to be king. He says, I made you. And I can break you. Now, I want you to note something. Abner doesn't necessarily say the accusation is true or false. Abner has a huge power base. He's the general of the armies of Saul. And now he's the general of the armies of Ishbosheth. And again, it would appear that he is the real power behind the throne. Abner, the son of Ner, is also the brother of Kish. Kish is the father of Saul. Abner, like Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Abner focused on his own personal ambition. And for those of you who've been following along in our study, you'll remember that when David killed Goliath, it was Saul who said to Abner, who is this kid? And Abner pretended like he didn't even know who the kid was, even though they grew up in the same area. And when David was elevated to the position of general in the army, David threatened Abner's position, and then David took Abner's position. And then when he fell out of favor with Saul and became man on the run, Abner was once again made the general of the armies of Saul. And you'll remember it was Abner who took an army of 3,000 crack Benjamite troops and hunted David in the wilderness like an animal. There is a long history between these two. And Abner had made every effort to keep David from being king. Abner's opposition to David's rule was bound to fail. Because God wanted David to be king. Now this becomes an important point for each and every one of you. The reason why it becomes an important point to each and every one of you is because God has established that Jesus Christ will be both Lord and Savior. It is God's plan and God's will. Remember, Paul writes, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it doesn't matter what your husband says, and it doesn't matter what your wife says, and it doesn't matter what your friends say, and it doesn't matter what CNN, NBC, CBS says. It doesn't matter what this world says. It doesn't matter what the History Channel says. It doesn't matter what the Science Channel says. It doesn't matter because God has established that Jesus Christ will be both king and lord and that he as david's son will rule and reign now i want you to think about this for just a moment 
because there's ambitions inside of us that suggest that Jesus is not the Lord. There is a Satan who opposes us that suggests, suggests that Jesus is going to fail. When Peter preached his famous sermon after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Peter quotes David's psalm. And Peter quotes the psalm and notes that David is dead and that David is buried and that David's body corrupted, but that David's son would not see corruption, but that he would come back to life. He says, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's Acts chapter 2, by the way, verses 33 through 36. God made Jesus Lord and Christ. Now, again, I want you to think about this. Does Abner know that David is the rightful king? Has he resisted the rightful king? Has he found himself on the wrong side more often than not? Does it look like he's switching sides for impure motives? But he's switching sides. And sometimes your family, your friends, your neighbor, you may look at them and you go, hey, wait a minute, I want you to come to Christ, but I want you to come to Christ for all the right reasons. I don't want you to come to Christ because things with the devil haven't worked out just exactly right for you and the big red machine. Here's the idea. Rulers come and rulers go by permission of God. David knew that God had entrusted him with the throne, that it was only a matter of time. And remember, David is getting stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker, and Abner begins to understand something, that things aren't going to last forever with Ishbosheth. Now in verse 7, when it says, And Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, What have you done to my father's concubine? Now this is a very fair question. Abner, dude, what is going on? What are you doing with my dad's concubine? Well, the answer could be, number one, Abner's a dirty old man. That's option number one. Option number two might be, Abner's trying to make a, a, a bid for the throne himself. Option number three might be Abner is trying to pick a fight with Ishbosheth in order to go over to David's side. He doesn't affirm, he doesn't deny it. Ishbosheth's power is weakening. The king accuses the general of having sex with one of the king's concubines. And in, those, in that culture, in that society, the property that a concubine is the property of the king, and when the king dies, the property becomes the property of the new king. And so, in effect, all of his father's concubines are Ishbosheth's concubines. And this is way, way worse. 
than having sex with a presidential intern. This is way, way worse than inappropriate behavior. <laughs> Do you understand what Ishbosheth is doing? Ishbosheth is accusing Abner of treason. And the charge is true, or the charge is false. We're not told. He doesn't confirm it, he doesn't deny it. He may have done it, he may not have done it. If he did, he was in effect making claim to the whole harem. If he did in fact do it, he's making claim to the whole harem and is in fact making claim to the whole throne. Rizpah was the daughter of Ai, which seems to be the name of a clan of Edomite people. This is the area of modern Jordan. And so this is a Jordanian person, if you will. She was a concubine of Saul, unmarried, significant other, whatever you want to say. In ancient times, it wasn't unusual, again, for the son to inherit the father's concubines. By the way, in the not-too-distant future, Absalom will initiate a civil war by publicly humiliating one of David's concubines. He will try to overthrow his father. He will have sex with her out in the open in a public rebellion. What Absalom will do is he will take one of his father's concubines and he will commit an act that is so horrible and so terrible that it will literally burn a bridge that he can never go back to. In other words, if you ask and answer this question, you know, what could I do to my dad to make sure that he will never, no, never, no, ever forgive me? That's what Absalom does. So, he wanted to make the act so wicked to make a public break. It would be an act so wicked that it would be perceived as an unforgivable sin. And so Abner either is really mad or he really isn't. The rage may be staged or it may be real. Whatever's going on, Abner has decided to switch allegiance. He's made Ishbosheth the king of the tribes. Now he's deciding to take those ten tribes and concede that God's plan was right all along. Now, even though he's been following in an imperfect way. And so we go back to our story. And so he says... May God do so to Abner and more also if I, do, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. He says in verse 10, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the very northern part of the Israeli holdings. Beersheba is the very southern part. It would be like if we said from Minnesota to New Orleans or if we said from Maine the San Francisco. It's to cover the entire geography that is held by the kingdom. And it says, and he couldn't answer Abner another word because he feared him. Here's the idea. The idea is no matter what I say at this point, Abner can kill me. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me. Obviously, when it says, whose is the land, the land belongs to the Lord. And the Lord has made David king. 
saying also, make your covenant with me. Now, remember what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement between two parties for the purposes of making a deal. And indeed, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And in verse 13, it says, and David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Why is he doing that? Remember, Michael is the daughter of Saul. And it could very well be that whatever sentiments or affections towards Saul, again, are going to be solidified by bringing her once again into his household. And so as one of the conditions, he insists that his ex-wife be brought back to him. There's a lot of different reasons why this might be happening. He might be doing this out of pride. He might be doing this for political advantage. He clearly isn't doing it because he needs one more woman. Remember, Michael is barren. She can never have children. And it says in verse 14, So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now by doing this, he is going to either concede or not concede. Have you ever been in a situation where, for whatever reason, someone felt compelled to pick a fight with you? And you didn't want to fight. All of a sudden, you're trying to live in peace, you're trying to live in harmony, but for whatever reason, someone takes a particular thing and they pick at you and pick at you and pick at you. And this is exactly what's happening here. (laughs) David could be doing this for any number of reasons. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return. It's his way of saying, Get a life. Stop crying, you wimp. Look. What are you going to do? You're going to challenge the king? And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of the enemies. You know what he's doing? He's quoting the prophet. The prophet has said that David will be king. The prophet has said that David is the instrument that God has ordained in order to deliver them from their enemies. It's just what the Bible says just about you, huh? God has made Jesus the king. God has made Jesus the instrument whereby you can be delivered from your enemies. And who are your enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil. Your enemies are those things and those people that are hindering you and preventing you from loving and serving and walking with the Lord. And it says in verse 19, 
Well, actually, at the end of verse 18, it says, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and of the hand of all their enemies. Verse 19, and Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. Remember, this is the tribal group, Benjamin. And so Abner goes on a campaign throughout the land saying, we've made a terrible mistake. God's plan and God's purpose was always that David should be king. And in verse 20, it says, So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. You, you see, you, you have to understand something. When you read verse 20, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. This becomes in affect a picture of David's enormous capacity to forgive. Is there bad blood? No kidding. Has there been trials and tragedies? Oh yeah. Remember what I've already said. Here's David and David could say, you know what? You're the guy who's tried to kill me for most of my adult life. Let's have a feast. Has someone ever tried to hurt you really terribly? And you wanted to have a relationship with them or you wanted to restore a friendship with them. And they say something like, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's forget about the past. Let's proceed in the present. Now, here's the idea. David is throwing an incredible feast for a former enemy. Do you want to know why? This is one of those characteristics. Remember what I said to you. David is capable of great goodness, but he's also capable of great wickedness. This is one of those things of great goodness. David has this capacity to forgive and be a peacemaker. David wants to repair the breach. David wants to bring reconciliation. The war has been torn apart by war, by unrest, by petty jealousy, by real injury. And now there is this unprecedented opportunity to heal the nation. But it only takes one person to say, this person hated you forever. They can unite together against their true enemies. But make no mistake about it. When a person wants to provide peace, there are always going to be people who don't want peace. David does what Jesus commands. Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says, feed your enemies. Jesus says, do good to those who curse you. Do good to those who do wickedly to, to you. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God in Matthew 5, 9. In Matthew 5, 43, it says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good for those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. That means believe that there's such a thing as judgment. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Wickedness is never the solution for wickedness. Evil is never the solution for evil. Bitterness is never the solution for bitterness. Think about what David is doing. David is willing to take all of the abuse and all of the humiliation And all of the sin that has been leveled against him. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abner has impure motives. The Bible is clear. Conflicts provide opportunities. We're at war. I know, isn't it great? What a great opportunity to love and trust and obey God. We're not getting along. I know, isn't it great? You have this incredible opportunity to live in peace. To trust in the Lord and to do what's good. You know, the next time you get into a fight, it is really worth asking this question. Is this worth fighting for? Examine yourself. Be sure that you're free from sin. The Bible teaches that we're to restore sinners gently. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to to go and show our brother his or her fault. We're to go and be reconciled. We're to forgive like God forgave us. We're to look out for the interest of others. We're to overcome evil with good. And I'm saying all of these things so that you will understand something, that this isn't a ploy on David's part to reconcile the country, but he really, really wants to see God's plan accomplished. Then Amner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that's David, that they may make a covenant with you and that, they may, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Then Joab and all the troops that were with him had come there told Joab saying Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he's gone in peace then Joab came to the king and said what have you done look Abner came to you why is it that you send him away and he's already gone it's his way of saying why didn't you kill him while you had the chance are you an idiot are you a fool are you crazy don't you understand who he is and don't you understand what he does he doesn't come right out and say he killed my brother He's got to die. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. To know you're going out and you're coming in. And to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David didn't know it. In other words, Joab says, I know, I know that you want peace, but guess what? Not going to happen. Joab doesn't have any of David's forgiving spirit. 
Joab doesn't know anything about pardon and he doesn't know anything about peace. He is furious and ferocious and here's his plan. I'm going to get even. Philip Keller writes, whispering something softly into Abner's ear, Joab drew his sword a veritable flash of steel, and viciously plunged it into Abder's abdomen just below the fifth rib. It was the same brutal stroke with which his brother Asael had been slain by Abner. And the general fell to the ground, dead. It was the ancient cruel way of shedding blood for blood. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, hand for hand, life for life. And look what it says. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron... Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or a leper or leans on a staff or falls by the sword or lacks bread. He's pronouncing a curse on him. Then David said to Joab and to, and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. Question. Does he really mean it? Is this an act? Is this a political accommodation because he wants to be king and he wants to be perceived by the northern tribes in order to be the kind of king that he's supposed to be? You, you, think about it. David's is no Boy Scout. David has killed literally hundreds of people. Is it his reputation? Abner came in peace to make peace. You have to understand something. Abner was under the protection of David. Abner came in peace to make peace apart from his motives. And some people would have to think that this was all a part of an elaborate conspiracy. But here's the idea. The truth is that David had nothing to do with Abner's murder. David must have felt betrayed by Joab to disregard his wishes in such a calloused way. David, now think about this. David has a weakness, and one of his weaknesses for his children, but one of his weaknesses is also going to be towards Joab. He has this amazing relationship with him. All things being equal, David understands something. That in order to do what is going to be necessary to do, he's going to have to postpone how he's going to deal with Joab. By the way, when, Joab, when, when Solomon eventually becomes the king, just like in a, in a movie from The Godfather, David will whisper dying words into Solomon's ear. You're going to have to take Fredo out to the lake and sort of put him under. It doesn't say that in the Bible that you're going to have to take Fredo out to the lake. But it does say in the Bible that Solomon is going to have to deal 
with this outstanding issue of Joab. Some people might argue, well, why didn't he put Joab to death right at this point? If David put Joab to death right at this point, it would lead to a full-scale blood war. Clan against clan. Remember what you're doing is you're creating a mechanism of perpetuating the violence. And so David declares a national day of mourning for the fallen general. He orders a full military funeral where the soldiers of Judah march in full dress uniform to follow, to, to, to bury the fallen general. And it says um, in verse 32, so they buried Abner in Hebron. And you have to understand something. You might just read that and think, well, what does that mean? Well, to be buried in Hebron is like being buried in Arlington National Cemetery in our country. You know who dies and who gets buried in Arlington Cemetery? Presidents, generals, heroes. You get buried in Arlington National Cemetery. It's a place reserved for heroes. And this is the place where you would find the grave of Sarah. You would find the grave of Abraham. You would find the grave of Isaac. You would find the grave of Jacob. This is sacred ground reserved only for people who are accorded the highest honor. He really means it. This isn't some act or some show. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell, then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. In other words, David refuses to eat. He's torn by grief. His sorrow is genuine. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, remember that's his sister, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to the wickedness. And so he gives this classic lamentation he doesn't fake the grief his words touch the nation he chooses a fast as an expression of the grief and I think in verse 39 David is saying look even though I've been anointed king I'm too weak to deal with these men these are tough guys Joab and Abishai they would bring David much grief in the years ahead but here's what I want to ask you does Jesus ever hang out with people who bring him grief You laugh. And the reason why you laugh is because you know that it's true. Remember, Jesus kept company with outlaw types, tax collectors, riffraff. James and John were called the sons of thunder. But make no mistake about it, it would be like a biker patch today. Why doesn't David just execute Joab? I think I have a hard answer. Because sometimes God allows hard people to remain in our lives. 
Sometimes God allows hard people to remain in our lives because sometimes God will use people like chisels to forge us and to shape us. Is there a difficult person in your life? No, you don't have to say their name out loud. You know what I think is great about having difficult people in your life? You can go to the son of David for strength. And you can go to David's son for courage. When you have difficult people in your life, Jesus wants to mold you and shape you and strengthen you and remind you that he has a plan for you and a purpose for you. We all have problem people. We all have difficult people. We all have unloving people. We all have unforgiving people. You know, in his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy writes, when you need to resolve conflict and when you need to solve problems, he says, do yourself a favor. Ask yourself a series of questions and answers. Ask yourself, how can I, he, said, he basically gives the, 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 it's not the 3G network, it's one, two, three, four Gs. The 4G network, first G, glorify God. How can I please and honor the Lord in the situation? Number two, get the log out of your own eye. How have I contributed to this conflict and what do I need to do? Third G, Go and show your brother his fault. The idea being, how can I help others to understand how they've contributed to this conflict? 4G, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate forgiveness and encourage a reasonable solution to the conflict? Glorify God. Get the log out of your own eye. Go and show your brother his fault. Go and be reconciled. You know what? Your life will forever be a series of conflicts and resolutions. And guess what? You'll either be a peace faker or a peacemaker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there's many, many adventures yet ahead for our hero, David. Lord, he's done things that are right and he's done things that are wrong. In many ways, he's reflected the character of Jesus and in many ways, he's compromised the character of Jesus. But in the end, Lord, in the end, you're molding him and shaping him. You are creating within his heart a willingness and a desire to be the king that you've called him to be. And Heavenly Father, each person here, Lord, you are drawing them and calling them. You're molding and shaping them. You're using the current circumstances to chisel them and to create in their heart the character of Christ. Lord, I pray that the house of the son of David 
is growing stronger and stronger. And that Saul is growing weaker and weaker. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.